You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at COVID. We got a lot right about the risks, but we talk with Bloomberg's Justin Fox, who says... We got the response wrong. And we'll look at the benefits of telehealth and how it can be especially helpful for teenagers. Bloomberg's Lisa Jarvis explains how the COVID pandemic highlighted how telehealth can fit in as part of your health care routine. Plus, the U.S. might want to consider changing its COVID booster strategy because whatever they're doing now just doesn't seem to be working. But we begin with another holdover from COVID, working from home. While companies are getting more serious about their return-to-office policies, more employees are looking for that flexibility in their careers. Karen Kimbrough is LinkedIn's chief economist. Employers are now gradually pulling back on that. They would like to see people back in the office. We're seeing an upswing in hybrid work where people are coming in, say, three days out of the week. Um, And we're seeing a decrease in job openings that offer fully remote work. So there's definitely a trend of getting back into the office. But is that the way to go? Is there any room for flexibility? Let's talk with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Sarah Green Carmichael. She joins us now. Sarah, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. In your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you use Amazon as an example because that company has gotten really serious about its return to work policy. Yes, Amazon has been tightening the screws now for months on employees. And um, last week, Business Insider got hold of a memo that they had sent to their managers asking them to uh, first talk to anyone who has not been coming in three times a week and give them a sort of an official warning, follow up with an email sort of documenting a Dolores Umbridge sort of type memo of, you know, you haven't been coming in and there will be consequences. And then <clears throat> if things haven't improved after a week or two, to really start termination proceedings. So this is really like exercising the nuclear option on hybrid work. You know, they're really saying you've got to be in three days a week. And if you're not, you could be fired. So what does this push and pull over working from home do to middle managers? I think it puts them in a really tough spot. You know, middle managers are in my Uh, as I've sort of talked with them, yes, would they like some of their employees to come in more often? Yes, they would. Do they want to be firing people? No. Are they trying to manage employees who have real needs for flexibility? Yes. Are they also trying to get people, you know, to to do their best at work? Of course. So I think uh, sort of asking middle managers to kind of become the enforcer of this policy really does put them in a bind on top of everything else that middle managers are asked to do. Now, why is there still so much disagreement about whether working from home actually works? Didn't we prove this in 2020 and beyond? Amy, that is the key question. Um, that's really the what the debate is here. Um, a lot of managers will say that they don't think that people are as productive at home. They see the primary benefit of hybrid work as work-life balance. Employees who are working uh, in a hybrid or remote way, see it differently. They, they're like, yeah, the work-life balance is nice, but actually one of the most important benefits is that I feel so much more productive at home. So there's this real perception gap based on your position in the organization. Um, I think part of that gap is to do with trust. 
Um, employees feel like they're getting a lot done at home. Managers cannot see them doing it. And so managers, I think, are more skeptical. Um, and it could also be that, you know, there are some types of, of managing that are actually more difficult when employees aren't right under your nose. So even if the employee is more productive, it makes the manager's job a little bit tougher. And this isn't supposition on your part. You found in writing this column on the Bloomberg Terminal is that there is research out there that shows when the employee has some power over their workspace, they do better. Yes, I talked to uh, an interesting expert in in uh, teams and performance, uh, David Burkus, and he, he was saying, you know, he's looked at, he's followed this research really closely. A lot of it's coming out of Stanford for, from Nicholas Bloom's group at Stanford. And I asked him, you know, why are we seeing now such disagreement between these studies? You know, work from home is is more productive. Actually, the office is more productive. He said a lot of it has to do with people sort of sorting into categories. So if someone prefers the office, they will actually be more productive at the office. If someone prefers working from home and has some control over, over, over their schedule and can do that, they'll be more productive, you know, in that arrangement. So what we're seeing now post-COVID is that when people have the option, um, to, to control their work environment, it actually does improve their performance. And that's, I think, what so many employees are trying to hold on to and what is so challenging for so many managers. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Sarah Green Carmichael about working from home and the push to return to work. Sarah, is there any indication that there's some sort of relevance to the timing of why there's been this big push of late of the past few months? I think there's probably a, a confluence of different factors. Um, you know, Companies have invested in their office spaces, and I, I'm not sure that they expected them to be this empty for this long. That's a that's kind of a huge sunk cost. And there is this assumption of like, well, we were working in person for the last hundred years. Um, surely that's got to be the best way. Uh, but actually, if you look back further, you know, people used to work from home all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, a- a- any farmer was working from home. You know, it's really only until we got these big factories in the Industrial Revolution that people started working outside the home. Um, any any cobbler, any smith, all these people worked right out of their homes. A lot of shopkeepers lived above the shop. So actually, work from home is the norm you know, over the course of centuries. And and it's only relatively recently that we invented these sort of massive office buildings. So from my perspective, I, I you know, I, I think it's worth taking the long view on this and, and thinking, you know, what do we want work to be like 100 years from now, rather than trying to preserve sort of what it's been like for most of the 20th century? Well, let's get into that a little bit. We've seen so many changes with COVID. And I think there's no question that the workplace dynamic has changed. And from what you've just said, it sounds like it's always changing. So would COVID then be one of those little shoves that helps change the workplace as we've known it for the past few decades? I mean, we'll see. I I think it will. I think what's hard about this moment is that there there were big changes that happened during COVID. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of growing pains, about, growing pains, anxiety, exactly. Um, and I think what's hard about us sort of policy like Amazon's, if, you know, come in this many days a week or we will summarily fire you, is that that even if you're happy to come in three days a week, that creates, that tension creates a really 
challenging work environment to feel good about, um, not only for managers, but for all kinds of people, you know, for people who've been happily coming in three or four or five days a week, but are now going to see some colleagues fired. Um, and so I think that um, part of what's hard about this particular moment is not just the debate over remote work, but the, the fact that this debate has created so much tension that is then infecting the workplace and affecting people's performance and affecting people's enjoyment of their work. Now, you have referred to something called return to managing. We all know RTO, return to office. You use the acronym RTM in your column. Yes, I think what's happening here is that a lot of companies have confused returning to office with returning to managing. You know, a manager's job is to motivate people, to inspire them, to give them feedback, to hold them accountable, to set big goals, uh, to move the work forward. And you can do a lot of that if you even without having your eyes directly on people, even without sitting next to them. And of course, we know this because we have companies that are global companies where people on a team might be dispersed all over the world. Um, and, you know, we're somehow fine with that. But then if people are, are within commuting distance or within 50 miles of the office and not coming in, suddenly it's like, but how can we possibly manage them? Um, so I think that really what, what needs to happen here is companies should just sort of Think to themselves, okay, like, what do we really need to do in person? And can we manage people without seeing them in person? And really put some of the effort they've been, enormous effort they've been putting into getting people back to the office and reallocate that just to managing, just to managing, to basic management skills, giving feedback, holding people accountable, setting goals, um, holding deadlines, you know, all those sort of back to basics management stuff. You don't need to get people back in the office to start managing them. You don't. So let's not confuse the two things. So then is there any concern about what this would do to morale? You yourself are talking about how some people may be perfectly happy to come into the office, but then when you see your colleagues get fired because they would rather have a more flexible schedule, what does that do to morale? What are the concerns there? I think there are big questions about morale right now. Um, forcing people to adopt a work arrangement that they don't like is going to be bad for morale. It's going to be bad for their morale. Their morale is going to affect other people's morale. Um, that's a challenge. I also do think that when you look at some of the the research on remote work, you know, it's not always like sunshine and kittens for the people doing it. You know, there are real trade-offs. Um, it can be, you know, that you work really hard and you're super productive from home, but you're also more likely to burn out and feel maybe less connected to your colleagues. You're lonelier. Um, we do need sort of these social bonds with each other. So I think that to, to my mind, accepting that and and figuring out like, how do we make this work for the, the largest number of people is a key question for management. I, I also think employees have responsibilities to ask themselves, how do I really work best? And if you really do work best in an office, I think you owe it to yourself, never mind the company, you owe it to yourself to put yourself in a position where you can do your best work. But given that, given the trade-offs people have to make in their real lives, I, I do think this is a moment of great fluidity. It's going to be challenging to manage. It's going to be challenging for each of us to figure out out of all the options we have, how do we work best? But it's also a moment of enormous opportunity where we really have a chance for the first time in decades to think about how should we make this work. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Sarah Green Carmichael. And coming up, we're going to take a look at the risks and the response to COVID. What did the country get right and what did everybody get wrong? You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. 
catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. As we take a closer look at the COVID pandemic this week, let's consider the risk factors and the response. Now, you might remember when Dr. Anthony Fauci, then head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, testified before Congress about the risks of the spread of COVID-19. This is back in June of 2020. We are now having 40 plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. And so I am very concerned. Well, that does feel like a long time ago, even though we are still feeling some residual impact of the illness and the loss and the risks involved. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox joins us now to look at what we got right and what we got wrong. And Justin, when you say risk in your columns on the Bloomberg Terminal, you're talking about the risk of catching COVID or hospitalizations or fatalities. What are you referring to? The risk of dying of it if you get it, the infection fatality rate. And what did you find? So very early on, back in March 2020, I was, you know, I'm not a medical journalist or anything, but I like to make charts and I was concerned and I wanted to, I was a little frustrated with how it was being covered. So I just went out to find, okay, well, what's the best estimate of how um, deadly this disease is? And it was a paper from February 2020 from Imperial college in London, Neil Ferguson, a guy who later became a little infamous for some reasons, but it 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 said it was approximately 1% of people who got it died in China. And when you looked in the details of the text, it was 0.8 or 0.9%. That was, um, and, and so, you know, I wrote a column then using that and a bunch of other numbers to sort of throw out this ballpark of 300,000 to 600,000 people could die of COVID in a year. And uh, that's what happened. Um, and so this whole backdrop is I'm reading this new book um, by a couple friends of mine, actually. Um, it's called The Big Fail. It's a history of the pandemic. And there's this discussion of um, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, who was early on pushing this idea that maybe it was a lot less dangerous than people thought mm-hmm. that COVID was. And and it just sort of misstated what, you know, it, there were these case fatality numbers going around where they just took confirmed cases and divided deaths. And it was like 3%. And I think everybody knew then that that was much, that was too high because most people weren't getting tested. Um, and so basically my Bhattacharya was arguing that maybe it was as low as 0.01% and 20 or 40,000 people would die of the disease in the US. And that was clearly wrong. And and yet um in in the book it was sort of discussed as if Bhattacharya had been right and the consensus had been wrong. And actually the consensus of how dangerous COVID was was pretty spot on. You look at the early papers that tried to make a serious estimate of it. And it was that, you know, in a population with, you know, like an age spread like the U.S., when it first hits, it would kill around 1% of people who got it, which is exactly what happened in New York. Um, it's less if, if, if it's not everywhere like it was in New York. It's less if the population is younger, like in sub-Saharan Africa. And and so my what was sort of interesting to me is I still think, you know, the initial reaction, who knows what the right thing was to do, but it does seem pretty clear in retrospect that sometime in summer um, 2020, 
things took this weird turn where, you know, a lot of places decided to keep schools closed for the whole year. And just a, a lot of places decided to just sort of keep a lighter version of the lockdowns going indefinitely. And I just, all the data, it, there, there's just not much evidence that that was the right thing to do. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox about how we got COVID's risks right, but the response was wrong. And let's get back to that. The pandemic shutdown, is it? Is there any way to measure whether that was worth it? I mean, there are lots of people who've run lots of regressions and done studies. And I think overall, the the argument is if you did it early enough, that maybe it was worth it. Um, like in New York, it's a little hard to say because I, my own, I, I attempted to sort of reconstruct the pandemic for a column a couple of years ago, like when when it hit, when people got it, when, and and it looked like it had already um, peaked and was receding when the strictest of the lockdown measures came in because people were scared and had already changed their behavior, um, and so. But I, I think overall, the idea that when it was first coming, you didn't have enough masks, hospitals risk being overwhelmed, it made sense to take a few weeks off from things. Um, but but I think a lot of places really, and the U.S. seems to have struggled the most. I mean, I guess in one sense, we some places opened up again very quickly. Lots of other places didn't. But it seemed like we kind of got the worst of both worlds, whereas there were other countries like Germany or Denmark that opened up pretty quickly, but were more careful about it, had more testing and stuff, and were able to mostly live their lives normally with, with some brief shutdowns in the winter. And it does seem like the biggest mismatch involved schooling and kids. Yeah. And, and how did the U.S. get that wrong? What what other what else could they have done? I mean, I... I you know, it was funny. I was watching a bunch of Fauci videos from that summer, and you know, he knew that there was very little risk to children. Mm -hmm. um, and he clearly his his default was that schools should reopen. But I don't know for whatever reasons he wasn't willing to push people to do that. And and definitely as as the summer went on and case numbers went up again in parts of the country, he was like, maybe you shouldn't reopen in those places where cases were really high. But it, what's kind of funny is what happened is schools reopened in all the places in the South where cases were really high and they didn't reopen in places on the coasts where they weren't. Um, so I and and I don't think it was disastrous in those places in the South where it reopened. Um, it definitely, I mean, you look at the numbers, like comparing Florida and California, and there were some, you know, more children died in Florida than in California, but it was very few in both places. While we were in the thick of this, before we had the testing and the vaccines, and while everyone was staying home, there was that debate, though, over how nasty this virus could be. One, they nailed it down pretty well, but the fact that there's this huge variance by age that extremely dangerous if you're above 60 not so dangerous if you're below 50 and sort of hard to know if you're in your 50s like <laughs> and 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 i just think that was hard to you know and with schools obviously very low risk to children but you know some teachers real risk uh so the knowledge was there and in the public health community that you know people knew what the risk were they knew the profile that it was much lower for children. I, you know, you could see it in the CDC data that it was putting out is not optimal at all. What have we learned? Huh? 
I mean, that's the most interesting. I mean, one thing since I've written it, there's still all of these people, including Jay Bhattacharya, still arguing that they were right, that it was much less dangerous than people thought. And I just I run the numbers and they're wrong. I mean, it was about as dangerous as people thought. Obviously got less dangerous over time, less dangerous where there aren't any old people, etc. And so it's interesting that that was done spectacularly well and figuring out what to do about that was really hard. And I, you know, I think it's it's the age gradient and it's also, you know, what do you do about a thing that has a 1% chance of killing people overall? It's like, do you completely shut down society or do you totally go normal? It's probably neither of those. It's somewhere in between. And I think the countries that were most successful sort of kept up this in between where they changed behavior, but it wasn't super dramatic like Japan or Sweden or wherever. All right, Justin, thank you so much for sharing those numbers with us. Glad to do it. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox. And coming up, we look at a different impact of COVID on kids' mental health and how telehealth, which grew in popularity during the height of the pandemic shutdown, might help. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Studies have shown the COVID pandemic seemed to worsen teens and adolescents' mental health. Pediatrician Dr. John Brownstein. We have systematic gaps, limited community and specialty resources, staffing challenges that really accentuate this problem. So the bottom line is our health systems are not there to improve care for our kids in mental health crisis right now. But there may be some hope. Telehealth appears to give more young people more access to support. Let's talk about this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis. She covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Now, Lisa, you heard that cut from the doctor, and you've referred to a new study by Rand in your column, which found that telehealth really does help youth feel more connected, at, at least for their mental and physical health. How so? You know, the study, the RAND study tried to look at what happened with mental health um, use before and during and, you know, towards the tail end of what we would consider the kind of peak pandemic um, and found that overall, if you looked from January 2019 through August 2022, overall mental health use was up 22%. And that was really largely driven by telehealth, which, you know, most people may recognize prior to the pandemic was almost at zero. Um, You know, a lot of insurers wouldn't cover it. It was just not a routine part of practice when it came to mental health um, services. And so, you know, there were a number of things that kind of enabled that, and I'm happy to get into it. But, you know, essentially what their data showed was that both usage went up, the cost did go up as well, but in parallel. So it wasn't like it was more expensive and it did seem to provide a lot more access to care for kids. Yeah, let's get into it. You said that there are some X factors and some reasons why this is happening. Yeah, I think, you know, beyond insurers, essentially some of the pandemic era rules made it so that insurers would cover um, telehealth, um, both public and private. Um, But, you know, I think a few other factors happened when kids moved to remote school. There was a huge push to 
make sure that everyone had devices and internet access, which allowed a lot more people to be able to participate in things like telehealth, you know, telehealth, whether it's for mental health or behavior, you know, um, physical health. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that increased access. And then, you know, I think people became more accustomed to the idea of, you know, seeing someone virtually rather than in person and that it could be just as good. And for this generation, it really can be meeting them where they are. They're used to interacting with their friends that way. And so it's not such a stretch to interact with a mental health provider that way. Yeah, let me ask about that. Is there a concern that maybe uh, an in-person meeting might be more effective than a telehealth meeting, or is that an issue? So there's been a lot of studies about that, um, kind of dating back to when people first started to do phone type of, you know, Mm -hmm. mental health visits. And they're in adults, granted, but they suggest that the quality of care people are getting is just as effective. I think, you know, certainly um, there are times when an in-person meeting, you might need a follow-up or, you know, that shouldn't be a piece of (laughs) our healthcare that we get rid of, Mm -hmm. you know, and everyone needs different things. So we need to have a lot of different ways to deliver mental health care to kids. But, um, you know, the evidence suggests that it's just as effective and that the retention rate is better. So people, there's a much um, lower no-show rate when it comes to telehealth, probably because people just, it's easier for them. They don't have to take an hour, two or three out of their day to commute to go to the office, you know, the the mental health provider's office, and they can just sort of pop in where they are. So um, they saw, there's data to show that kids are going more adult kids and adults are going more consistently to their appointments, which suggests that, you know, maybe they're getting more out of it, too. That makes more sense because it would be private. It would be more convenient. You wouldn't have to worry about getting to and from the location. Um, You talk about in your column, though, that there are kids who need help and there are kids who get help and that there is a gap. Is that something new because of the pandemic or is this the gap we've been always seeing? Yeah, that's a gap we've been always seeing. You know, it's a it's a racial gap in access to mental health care. Um, you know, in the pandemic, one thing that happened is with schools closed, kids who might have typically received care in the environment of the school might not have been getting it. But when it comes to telehealth, one of the things that really needs to be improved is that um, in this RAND study, they found that Black and Latinx kids um, just weren't switched to telehealth um, as often as white kids. Um, And so, you know, that sort of mode of care and ease of care was just wasn't being offered to them at the same level. And so, you know, that needs to be fixed. (laughs) And, um, you know, I I think one of the things that I talk about, and I mentioned earlier, is just this idea of making sure that everyone has um, internet, everyone has a a device that they can access their provider, you know, interact with their provider on. Um, And so um, all all of the, the modes are important, but telehealth can be one that can be, you know, really useful. And so we need to close that gap. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis about the impact of the pandemic on kids' mental health and access to mental health care. So the study that you referenced, actually you referenced several within your column, uh, when it comes to the use of telehealth, how are kids able to take advantage of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a multifactorial, but, you know, um, 
sometimes they might, that might be their first visit with a provider. Maybe that's a way that they switch. You know, I think I've talked to folks um, who are, you know, child psychiatrists who have suggested that one thing that could happen, there's a big push right now to put more mental health providers inside schools. Could it be that kids can get pulled aside and do their provider visit while they're at school via telehealth, you know, um, so that they don't have to miss a chunk of their day? Um, those are all things that need to be considered. And, um, you know, the Biden administration is trying to put a lot of money into ensuring that there's better services, particularly for kids, as we all recognize this crisis. So that's an area that we should be looking at. And you make a really good point about insurance companies and how they might be responding once telehealth is starting to catch on. Do you think it'll still be covered? Gosh, I hope so. Every person I talked to for that column was worried about that, you know, just because you saw the cost of overall care go up because usage went up, which is sure. good. It wasn't like it went up in an outsized way, but, you know, kids really need to be accessing this more, um, you know, and I think what can be confusing is, you know, different plans cover different things. If you switch insurance, um, the uh, extension, though the PH, the public health emergency has ended, um, Congress has ensured that telehealth will still stay part of our, you know, access for people with public insurance through the end of 2024. We really want to make sure that that continues, you know, beyond that, because it, though I think there's mixed evidence when it comes to our physical health and telehealth, when it comes to mental health, it really feels like this is an important, you know, way of delivering care. And in a more 30,000-foot broader view of this, you reference a study by Harvard that makes this grim point. Um, all kids, all demographics across the board, the different ages, the race, how much money your mom and dad have do not matter. They're struggling. Is this also a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it. It preceded the pandemic for sure. I think the pandemic exacerbated it. You know, we've seen some really disturbing um, survey results. The CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which comes out once a year, um, you know, you probably saw the headlines, uh, including one that I wrote <laughs> about that survey um, at the beginning of this year, you know, 60% of teenage girls reporting persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, you know, it, 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 it is hitting all kids. It does not matter, you know, their, their socioeconomic situation, their race, their gender, their ethnicity, like it's just across the board. And so I think there's a lot of effort to try to mobilize and address the kids that are struggling. Are you able to gauge yet how popular telehealth is becoming? That's a good question. One of the things about the RAND study that was a little tough, and they, you know, fully admit that they can't parse the number of users that might have increased versus the number of people who might have been visiting their provider more often. Mm. And so that's the next step in what they're researching. And I think that'll help us understand, you know, who is benefiting a little on a little more granular level and how many more people are benefiting versus whether there's like some portion that are just getting more consistent help and versus new users of, of telehealth. So I think there's still more studies to be done, but so far it really does feel like the evidence is that this helps kids a lot. <laughs> and if you can take advantage of it, why not? Exactly. You know, we all have computers. We're used to Zoom by now, kids included. <laughs> Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Mamie Morris. 
Have you gotten your COVID booster? Chances are you have not. In fact, less than 3% of eligible Americans have gotten a COVID booster this fall. Faith Lamb is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering science and host of the Follow the Science podcast. And she joins us now. Faye, what is the holdup? Why are numbers so low? Some of it is that I don't think people have a clear idea of why they should get these boosters. I think it was a lot clearer why people should get the initial shots because uh, there was evidence that they might protect uh, our whole communities by um, you know, reducing the odds that you would get infected. And also if people were at risk of having severe disease, they, these shots were really very effective at keeping people out of the, the hospital. But now that we're, many people are on you know, shot number six or seven, I think for young, younger, healthy people, it's a little unclear what the point is. Right, do healthy people even need these boosters? A lot of doctors will say no. And so there was actually a piece that caught my eye because I'd seen some controversy on Twitter about this, but there was a piece, a commentary piece in Science by two really prominent immunologists saying, no, we should actually, if we really want to save lives, we should be focusing these shots on the people we know are most vulnerable to severe disease because the evidence that they prevent mild disease is is pretty weak right now. But that people in nursing homes, the, the really elderly people, they haven't all gotten this booster and they should. Now, is this all part of the mindset that the pandemic is all over? We're done, boy. Got through that. Well, it's a little bit, but I also think it's that there was a sort of a public health strategy that was to be blunt, you know, to to try to to try to oversimplify things. You uh -huh. know, even though they knew that not everybody was at high risk, they felt like somehow uh, that people wouldn't get the message or wouldn't take it seriously unless they said everybody is equally at risk. And I think people realize it's not true. So is that a strategy that has then failed? They need to fix it? I think so, yeah. I think people are smarter than that. And I think it can fail the people who really are at high risk. Do you remember during the height of the pandemic, those mass vaccination sites that popped up and they seemed to work quite well? It was military precision to get everybody yes. in and out. Well, can they do that again? Maybe, but I think we're just, it, it would cost a lot of money and we're in a very different situation right now. You know, back then the vaccines really had a huge effect because there were still a massive uh, proportion of the population that had no immunity to this virus. And now um, there are some estimates to say 99% of us either have had COVID or had the shots or some combination of both. Right. And so we're not in the same position we were in where we had this, you know, huge percentage of the population, the majority of Americans still had no immunity to this. And there were, you know, there were clinical trials showing that that we were much less likely to get severely ill if we got these shots. And that there was some evidence that we were less likely to get a mild case and give it to others so that there was a, a sense that you were doing your civic duty to protect the immune compromised, the people that were less likely to get protection by just cutting down on the number of cases and the risk to those people. Is that the same attitude that we have with the flu? A little bit, yeah. I think people sort of feel like, well, you know, I don't, I, I might be less likely to get, you can still get the flu sure. after you get a flu shot, but yeah. I think that people feel like, well, they're at least doing what they can, you know, so that they don't get a mild case and give it to someone they're visiting an elderly relative. So I think that that there is a sort of a sense also that 
nobody wants to get a nasty case of flu. And if the flu shot means that what would have been a nasty case of flu is a very mild case of flu, that's, um, you know, that's desirable for a lot of people. Faith Lamb is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering science and host of the Follow the Science podcast. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal, and we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.